Chapter Four of Seven Keys to Baldpate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Umpleby. Seven Keys to Baldpate by Earl Dare Biggers. Chapter Four. A Professional Hermit Appears. Every morning at eight, when slumber's chains had bound Mr. McGee in his New York apartments, he was awakened by a pompous valet named Geoffrey, whom he shared with the other young men in the building. It was Geoffrey's custom to enter, raise the curtains, and speak of the weather in a voice vibrant with feeling, as if of something he had prepared himself, and was anxious to have Mr. McGee try. So, when a rattling noise came to his ear on his first morning at Baldpate Inn, Mr. McGee breathed sleepily from the covers. "'Good morning, Geoffrey.' But no cheery voice replied in terms of sun, wind, or rain. Surprised, Mr. McGee sat up in bed. About him the maplewood furniture of Sweet Seven stood shivering in the chill of the December morning. Through the door at his left he caught sight of a white tub into which, he recalled, sadly, not even a Geoffrey could coax a glittering drop. Yes, he was at Baldpate Inn. He remembered the climb with the dazed Quimby up the snowy road, the plaint of the lovelorn haberdasher, the vagaries of the professor with a penchant for blondes, the mysterious click of the door-latch on the floor above, and last of all, strange that it should have been last, a girl in blue corduroy, somewhat darker than her eyes, who wept amid the station's gloom. I wonder, reflected Mr. McGee, staring at the very brassy bars at the foot of his bed, what new variations on seclusion the day will bring forth. Again came the rattling noise that had awakened him. He looked toward the nearest window, and through an unfrosted corner of the pane he saw the eyes of the newest variation staring at him in wonder. They were dark eyes, and kindly. They spoke a desire to enter. Rising from his warm retreat, Mr. McGee took his shivering way across the uncarpeted floor and unfastened the window's catch. From the blustery balcony a plump little man stepped inside. He had a market-basket on his arm. His face was a stranger to razors, his hair to shears. He reminded Mr. McGee of the celebrated doctor who came every year to the small town of his boyhood, there to sell a wonderful healing herb to the crowds on the street corner. McGee dived hastily back under the covers. Well, he questioned. So you're the fellow, remarked the little man in awe. He placed the basket on the floor. It appeared to be filled with bromidic groceries, such as the most subdued householder carries home. Which fellow? asked Mr. McGee. The fellow Elijah Quimby told me about, explained he of the long brown locks. The fellow that's come up to Baldpate Inn to be alone with his thoughts. "'You're one of the villagers, I take it,' guessed Mr. McGee. "'You're dead wrong. I'm no villager. My instincts are all in the other direction, away from the crowd. I live up near the top of Baldpate, in a little shack I built myself. My name's Peters, Jake Peters, in the winter. But in the summer, when the inn's open, and the red and white awnings are out, and the band plays in the casino every night, then I'm the hermit of Baldpate Mountain.' I come down here and sell picture postcards of myself to the ladies. Mr. McGee appeared overcome with mirth. 
A professional hermit by the gods, he cried. Say, I didn't know Baldpate Mountain was fitted up with all the modern improvements. This is great luck. I'm an amateur at the hermit business. You'll have to teach me the fine points. Sit down. Just between ourselves, I'm not a regular hermit, said the plump, bewhiskered one, sitting gingerly on the edge of a frail chair. Not one of these all-for-the-love-of-a-woman hermits you read about in books. Of course, I have to pretend I am, in summer, in order to sell the cards and do my whole duty by the inn management. A lot of the women ask me in soft tones about the great disappointment that drove me to old Baldpate, and I give them various answers, according to how I feel. Speaking to you as a friend, and considering the fact that it's the dead of winter, I may say there was little or no romance in my life. I married early, and stayed married a long time. I came up here for peace and quiet, and because I felt a man ought to read something besides timetables and tradesmen's bills, and have something over his head besides a first and second mortgage. Back to nature, in other words, remarked Mr. McGee. Yes, sir, back with a rush. I was down to the village this morning for a few groceries, and I stopped off at Quimby's, as I often do. He told me about you. I help him a lot around the inn, and we arranged I was to stop in and start your fire and do any other little errands you might want done. I thought we ought to get acquainted, you and me, being as we're both literary men after a manner of speaking. No! cried Mr. McGee. Yes, said the hermit of Baldpate. I dip into that work a little, now and then. Some of my verses on the joys of solitude have appeared in print, on the postcards I sell to the guests in the summer. But my life-work, as you might call it, is a book I've had under way for some time. It's called, simply, Woman. Just that one word, but, oh, the meaning in it. That book is going to prove that all the trouble in the world from the beginning of time was caused by females. Not just say so, mind you. Prove it. A difficult task, I'm afraid, smiled McGee. Not difficult. Long corrected the hermit. When I started out four years ago, I thought it would just be a case of a chapter on Eve, an honorable mention for Cleopatra and Helen of Troy, and a few more like that, and the thing would be done. But as I got into the subject, I was fairly buried under new evidence. Then Mr. Carnegie came along and gave Upper Asquewan Falls a library. It's wonderful to think the great works that man will be responsible for. I've dedicated woman to him. Since the new library, I've dug up information about a thousand disasters I never dreamed of before. And I contend that if you go back a ways in any one of them, you'll find the fluffy little lady that started the whole rumpus. So I hunt the woman. I reckon the French would call me the greatest cherche la femme in history. A fascinating pursuit, laughed Mr. McGee. I'm glad you've told me about it and I shall watch the progress of the work with interest. Although I can't say that I entirely agree with you. Here and there is a woman who more than makes amends for whatever trouble her sisters have caused. One, for instance, with golden hair and eyes that when they weep... You're young, interrupted the little man, rising. There ain't no use to debate it with you. I might as well try to argue with a storm at sea. Some men keep the illusion to the end of their days, and I hope you're one. I reckon I'll start your fire. 
he went into the outer room and mr mcgee lay for a few moments listening to his preparations about the fireplace this was comfort he thought and yet something was wrong was it the growing feeling of emptiness inside undoubtedly he sat up in bed and leaning over gazed into the hermit's basket the packages he saw there made his feeling of emptiness the more acute i say mr peters he cried leaping from bed and running into the outer room where the hermit was persuading a faint blaze i've an idea you can cook can't you cook repeated the hermit well yes i've had to learn a few things about it living far from the rathskellers the way i do the very man rejoiced mr mcgee you must stay here and cook for me for us us asked the hermit staring yes i forgot to tell you after mr quimby left me last night two other amateur hermits hove into view one is a haberdasher with a broken heart woman cried the triumphant peters name arabella laughed mcgee the other's a college professor who made an indiscreet remark about blondes you won't mind them i'm sure and they may be able to help you a lot with your great work i don't know what quimby will say studied the hermit i reckon he'll run him out he's against this thing afraid of fire quimby will come later mr mcgee assured him drawing on a dressing gown just now the idea is a little water in yonder tub and a nice cheerful breakfast after it's going to pay you a lot better than selling postcards to romantic ladies i promise you i won't take you away from a work for which the world is panting without more than making it up to you financially where do you stand as a coffee maker wait till you taste it said peters reassuringly i'll bring you up some water he started for the door but mr mcgee preceded him the haberdasher he explained sleeps below and he's a nervous man he might commit the awful error of shooting the only cook on baldpate mountain mr mcgee went out into the hall and called from the depths the figure of bland fully attired in his flashy garments and looking tawdry and tired in the morning light i've been up hours he remarked heard somebody knocking round the kitchen but i ain't seen any breakfast brought in on a silver tray my inside feels like the mammoth cave mr mcgee introduced the hermit of baldpate pleased to meet you said bland i guess it was you i heard it in the kitchen so you're going to cater to this select few are you believe me you can't get on the job any too soon to suit me out of a nearby door stepped the black-garbed figure of professor thaddeus bolton and him mr mcgee included in the presentation ceremonies after the hermit had disappeared below burdened with his market basket and the supplies mr mcgee had brought the night before the three amateurs at the hermit game gathered by the fire in number seven and mr bland spoke feelingly i don't know where you pluck that cook but believe me you get a vote of thanks from yours truly what is he an advertisement for a hair restorer he's a hermit explained mcgee and lives in a shack near the mountain top hermits and barbers aren't supposed to mix he's also an author and is writing a book in which he lays all the trouble of the ages at the feet of woman please treat him with the respect all these dignified activities demand a writer you say commented professor bolton let us hope it will not interfere with his cooking abilities 
for even I, who am not much given to thought about material things, must admit the presence of a gnawing hunger within. They talked little, being men unfed, while Jake Peter started proceedings in the kitchen, and tramped upstairs with many pails of water. Mr. McGee requested warm water for shaving, whereupon he was regarded with mingled emotions by his companions. "'You ain't going to see any skirts up here,' Mr. Bland promised him. And Mr. Peters, bringing the water from below, took occasion to point out that shaving was one of man's troubles directly attributable to woman's presence in the world. At length the hermit summoned them to breakfast, and as they descended the broad stair the heavenly odor of coffee sent a glow to their hearts. Peters had built a rousing fire in the big fireplace opposite the clerk's desk in the office, and in front of this he had placed a table which held promise of a satisfactory breakfast. As the three sat down, Mr. Bland spoke. "'I don't know about you, gentlemen, but I could fall on Mr. Peter's neck and call him blessed.' The gentleman thus referred to served them genially. He brought to Mr. McGee, between whom he and himself he recognized the tie of authorship, a copy of a New York paper that he claimed to get each morning from the station agent, and which helped him greatly, he said, in his eternal search for the woman. As the meal passed, Mr. McGee glanced it through. Twice he looked up from it to study keenly his queer companions at Baldpate Inn. Finally, he handed it across the table to the haberdasher. The dull yellow sun of a winter morning drifted in from the white outdoors. The fire sputtered gaily in the grate. Also, Mr. Peter's failing for literature interfered in no way with his talents as cook. The three finished the repast in great good humor, and Mr. McGee handed round cigars. Gentlemen, he remarked, pushing back his chair, we find ourselves in a peculiar position. Three lone men, knowing nothing of one another, we have sought the solitude of Baldpate Inn at almost the same moment. Why? Last night before you came, Professor Bolton, Mr. Bland gave me as his reason for being here the story of Arabella which I afterward appropriated as a joke and gave as my own reason. I related to Mr. Bland the fiction about the artist and the besieging novelists. We swapped stories when you came. It was our merry little method of doubting each other's word. Perhaps it was bad taste. At any rate, looking at it in the morning light, I am inclined to return Mr. Bland's Arabella, and no questions asked. He is again the lovelorn haberdasher. I am inclined to believe, implicitly, your story. That is my proposition. No doubts of one another. We are here for whatever reasons we say we are. The professor nodded gravely. Last night, went on Mr. McGee, there was some talk between Mr. Bland and myself about one of us leaving the inn. Mr. Bland demanded it. I trust he sees the matter differently this morning. I, for one, should be sorry to see him go. "'I've changed my mind,' said Mr. Bland. The look on his thin face was not a pleasant one. "'Very good,' went on Mr. McGee. "'I see no reason why we should not proceed on friendly terms. Mr. Peters has agreed to cook for us. He can no doubt be persuaded to attend to our other wants. For his services we shall pay him generously, in view of the circumstances. As for Quimby, I leave you to make your peace with him.' 
"'I have a letter to Mr. Quimby from my old friend John Bentley,' said the professor, "'which I am sure will win me the caretaker's warm regard.' Mr. McGee looked at Bland. "'I'll get Randy Rudder on the wire,' said that gentleman. "'Quimby will listen to him, I guess.' "'Maybe,' remarked McGee carelessly. "'Who is Rudder?' "'He's manager of the inn when it's open,' answered Mr. Bland. He looked suspiciously at McGee. "'I only know him slightly,' he added. "'Those matters you will arrange for yourselves,' Mr. McGee went on. "'I shall be very glad of your company if you can fix it to stay. "'Believe it or not, I forgot. "'We agreed to believe, didn't we?' I am here to do some writing. I am going up to my room now to do a little work. All I ask of you, gentlemen, is that, as a favor to me, you refrain from shooting at each other while I am gone. You see, I am trying to keep crude melodrama out of my stuff. I am sure, remarked Professor Bolton, that the use of firearms as a means of social diversion between Mr. Bland and myself is unthought of. I hope so, responded McGee. There, then, the matter rests. We are here. That is all. He hesitated as though in doubt. Then, with a decisive motion, he drew toward him the New York paper. With his eyes on the headlines of the first page, he continued, I shall demand no further explanations, and except for this once, I shall make no reference to this story in the newspaper, to the effect that early yesterday morning, in a laboratory at one of our leading universities, a young assistant instructor was found dead under peculiar circumstances. He glanced keenly at the bald-headed little man across from him. Nor shall I make conversation of the fact, he added, that the professor of chemistry at the university, a man past middle age, respected highly in the university circle, is missing. An oppressive silence followed this remark. Mr. Bland's sly eyes sought quickly the professor's face. The older man sat staring at his plate. Then he raised his head, and the round spectacles were turned full on McGee. "'You are very kind,' said Professor Bolton evenly. "'There is another story in this paper,' went on Mr. McGee, glancing at the haberdasher, "'that it seems to me I ought to taboo as table-talk at Baldpate Inn. "'It relates that, a few days ago, the youthful cashier of a bank in a small Pennsylvania town "'disappeared with thirty thousand dollars of the bank's funds. "'No,' he concluded, "'we are simply here, gentlemen, and I am very glad to let it go at that.' "'Mr. Bland sneered knowingly.' "'I should think you would be,' he said. "'If you'll turn that paper over, you'll read on the back page that day before yesterday a lot of expensive paintings in a New York millionaire's house were cut from their frames, and that the young artist who was doing retouching in the house at the time had been just careless enough not to send his address to the police. It's a small matter, of course, and the professor and I will never mention it again.' Mr. McGee threw back his head and laughed heartily. "'We understand one another, it seems,' he said. "'I look forward to pleasant companionship where I had expected solitude. "'You will excuse me now. There is the work to which I referred. "'Ah, here's Peters,' he added as the hermit entered through the dining-room door at the side of the stairs. "'All finished, gentlemen?' he asked, coming forward. "'Now this is solid comfort, ain't it?' 
I reckon when you get a few days of this, you'll all become hermits, and build yourselves shacks on the mountain. Solid comfort. No woman to make you put on overshoes when you go out, or lecture you about the effects of alcohol on the stomach. Heaven, I call it. Peter, said Mr. McGee, we have been wondering if you will stay on here and cook for us. We need you. How about it? Well, I'll be glad to help you out, the hermit replied. I guess I can manage to give satisfaction, seeing there ain't no women around. If there was, I wouldn't think of it. Yes, I'll stay and do what I can to boost the hermit life in your estimation. I... He stopped. His eyes were on the dining-room door, toward which Mr. McGee's back was turned. The jaw of Peter's fell, and his mouth stood wide open. Behind the underbrush of a beard, a very surprised face was discernible. Mr. McGee turned quickly. A few feet inside the door stood the girl of the station, weeping no more, but radiant with smiles. Back of her was the determined, impossible companion of yesterday. "'Oh, Mama! laughed the girl. "'We're too late for breakfast. Isn't it a shame?' Mr. Bland's lean hands went quickly to adjust his purple tie. Professor Bolton looked every inch the owl as he blinked in dazed fashion at the blue corduroy vision. Gingerly, Mr. Peters set down the plates he had taken from the table, still neglecting his open mouth. Mr. McGee rose from the table and went forward with an outstretched hand. End of Chapter 4